Welcome to the I-24 News Podcast, Synagogue and State. Happy to be joined this week by the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Floor Hassan Nahum, talking to us from Jerusalem, where she handles foreign affairs, tourism, basically the foreign minister for the holy city of Jerusalem. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always wonderful to be on I-24. We got a lot of talk to talk about and a limited time to do it. So let's get underway here. You describe yourself as an orthodox feminist, and you're living in a city that is quite orthodox, but not so quite feminist. <laughs> you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know all about it. So yeah. it, I know you're, you're making efforts to bring more uh, religious women into the political sphere, more religious women just to have their voices heard, period, even if they're not elected officials. It's slow progress. It's hard work, I'm sure. What what does the future hold for, for religious women in Israeli politics? Well, first of all, I just want to take us back to uh, our fo- founding mothers of the state of Israel, because we always talk about the founding fathers, um, and we all know who they are. We have all great admiration. But sometimes we really forget about the value that the founding mothers of the state uh, brought to the character of Israel today. And when I'm talking about the founding mothers, we're talking about the women who set up Witso, Naamat, Hadassah. These were the women who, along with the men, were the builders of our state and uh, taking their kind of female leadership roles when the men were busy diplomatically trying to advocate for a state. The women were in the ground realizing that there were babies and mothers dying because of a public health crisis, um, that there was a lot of poverty, that you couldn't build a country uh, whilst fighting only with half a workforce. And therefore, you know, we have stories of women who became farmers in the beginning of uh, the establishment of the state of Israel. And so the character of this country was always, it was always built as an egalitarian country. And therefore, it's kind of sad for me that because of religion and state together, somehow this very, the, the very founding ethos of the country has been eroded and women's place has been a little bit eroded in that sense. Now, let's just talk numbers here. In terms of women's representation and leadership, we have 25% of the Knesset are women. We have um, 30, uh, 19% of women in local government, like me, women. And so we're very, very far um, from being in a place where women are 50% of the decision makers, which is the only place I see uh, we should be going towards. Now, religious women, uh, there's a, there's a, you know, when you say religious, there's a huge spectrum, as you know. So I'm a modern religious woman, um, and I'm sure there's lots of Haredi women who wouldn't consider me religious at all. But I, I describe myself religious because, you know, my family and I keep Shabbat and kosher and everything else. My kids go to religious schools. Um, but there's a big, big spectrum. So on the, on the very kind of right side of the spectrum are the ultra-Orthodox women. And then um, that goes all the way to mainstream ultra-Orthodox, to a little bit more relaxed ultra-Orthodox, to national religious, like Khardal, we call it here, which is kind of ultra-Orthodox, but they're national, uh, they're Zionist. And then all the way towards me, um, and even far left than me, which are probably uh, the women uh, leading the progressive streams of Judaism. So when you talk about religious, uh, you know, you know, women, there's a big spectrum. When you talk about orthodox feminists like me, 
So of, of course, we're talking about uh, the, the modern religious over to the Haredi. Um, the future, I think, is brighter than what it is right now. I'm an optimist. If I wasn't an optimist, I wouldn't be a politician because then I'd have very little to give. Um, and I believe that um, uh, at the moment, the biggest, I guess, the biggest crisis in this that we have is that ultra-Orthodox women are not accepted to run on electoral slates of ultra-Orthodox parties. And I think that's the biggest at the moment. If you're going to point to the biggest suffragette movement in the country or suffragette-like movement, you have the ultra-Orthodox women who want to not, they don't want to run with Blue and White, with Likud. They want to run in ultra-Orthodox parties. They want that legitimacy. Now, you have to understand that you have to understand that basically we have a situation where the ultra-Orthodox have begun convincing people that somehow, that somehow there's something halachically wrong with women, ultra-Orthodox women being politicians, which is a complete fallacy. There's nothing that says anywhere in any Jewish source that women cannot be leaders, women can't be politicians. And so the ultra-Orthodox uh, female community woke up to this a number of years ago uh, when they realized that they weren't really being represented by the ultra-Orthodox parties. And so the women had to be around the table in order to, to represent other ultra-Orthodox women. Um, now, if you talk to any ultra-Orthodox party today, they'll say, no, no, it'll never happen, never happen. I give it 10 years uh, when we've gone to court enough to uh, legislate the fact that uh, parties that gender segregate are not uh, legitimate, should not get government funding and lots of other things like that. Um, so I'm hoping that even though today it's looking bleak, that with the evolution of people, with the evolution of society and with the evolution of the new generation of ultra-Orthodox who are far less, who are far more uh, pro-integration than their parents and their grandparents, that we will be seeing ultra-Orthodox women in politics within 10 years. You uh, work at the municipal uh, level in Jerusalem and with the chaos going on at the national level. You know, people think Israel, because it punches above its weight, is this, this, this behemoth, but it's it's really just this tiny sliver of land and most of the power, almost all of the power, is at the federal level, is at the, the, the Knesset. But with everything going on right now, municipalities have taken it upon themselves to implement their own programs, bypassing Absolutely. the national legislators. And we've seen uh, matters of religion and state come up. Some municipalities have started implementing uh, public transportation on Shabbat, things of that nature. Has, has Jerusalem, the municipality, taken any action or plan to take any action in terms of religion and state with everything in crisis at the national level right now? Unfortunately, in Jerusalem, it's practically impossible to do anything uh, progressive in terms of religion and state for one very practical reason. Half the city council that I sit in is ultra-Orthodox. And so um, not only is it hard to pass anything, we have to fight against discrimination of budgets uh, for LGBT community, for example. We have to fight against discrimination of budgets um, that that are trying, the ultra-Orthodox are constantly trying to limit the budgets going to non-ultra-Orthodox streams of Judaism um, and to the point that the LGBT community, as well as the reform community, uh, have ended up going to the high court in order to get uh, their proportional funding. Otherwise, uh, we could never, we could never have passed it 
on a political level, which means that not only are we not moving forward, we're having to fight to keep what we have because of the makeup of local government uh, with the power that the ultra-Orthodox has. You know, this may seem like an obvious answer to some, but I'll ask the question anyway. With you um, being from the religious sphere, why why is it so important to you specifically to have money going to other streams of, of Judaism in particular or, or non-religious uh, sectors of Jerusalem? What, what do you gain from it? I'm a pluralist. And so I gain from it the fact that I believe that Jerusalem should be the city of all Jews from all backgrounds and every single Jew from every single background should be able to see themselves in the uh, in our spiritual and our physical capital of our people. That's that's my motivation. I don't want Jerusalem to become homogeneous. I don't want Jerusalem to become only the home for one type of Jew because then we've lost the strategic significance of Jerusalem. And then there's no reason to justify why Jerusalem is our capital city of the state of Israel. If it's not the capital city of all Jews, then it has less legitimacy as our capital city. And therefore, it's in my interest as well as in everybody's interest. I mean, I speak to a lot of Orthodox people and they even agree with me. Jerusalem should be a place for all Jews where all Jews can call home. And therefore, it's important to me that every stream uh, gets what they deserve in terms of the work and the impact of the work that they're doing. Uh, and that eat from the secular uh, to our populations uh, have uh, exactly in terms of fair budgets, fair resources to be able to, 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 to stay in the city. I want to talk about the Arab population for a moment because you are a, a proponent, one of many, of the controversial project, this cable car project to take uh, folks from uh, what's called the first station in Jerusalem over top of the city via cable car to the Western Wall, to the Kotel, uh, able to bring about 300 tourists per hour um, uh, in terms 3, of the uh, plan. 3,000, I'm sorry. Uh, in terms of the planning, uh, there are opponents of this plan for any number of reasons. Uh, those that feel it would be a blight on the city architecturally, visually, others That's feel right. environmental issues, but some feel that it's in fact overlooking the Arab neighborhoods, basically, this cable car would go over top of Silwan, which used to be a Jewish area way back when, now predominantly Arab, and basically ignoring the Arab population, only making it a Jewish vision of the city. What, what's your response to that? So it's very interesting because I grew up in Gibraltar. Um, and Gibraltar, I, 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 I actually presented at a conference last week. I grew up with a cable car going over my head. And not for one second did I believe it was the British trying to impose their sovereignty or somehow making it political. So I think much ado has been made about something which ultimately is a tourist transport infrastructural project. And therefore, um, and this is what I said in the conference where I was completely in the minority, by the way, everybody in the conference that I went to was against the cable car. And I came and said, look, I hold the tourism portfolio. I know that there's 150,000 people going into the old city of Jerusalem every week. I know that the whole of the Holy Basin is clogged up with cars and with tour buses, completely choked. I know that tourism is going to keep going up in our city and in our country. And I know 
that we can't burrow through history and make roads and underground roads in areas where we won't be able to build for heritage reasons. And therefore, because I'm a practical person, I understand that the cable car is the only, um, is the only uh, green and, uh, and, and best way to get people into the old city. Now, people say that it, 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 uh, the main heritage of this city is Jewish heritage. And whoever doesn't understand that is completely ignorant of history. We don't ignore other people's histories. I was the head of the preservation committee in the city. It's a building committee, head of preservations committee. Everything before 1948 is preserved in the city. Arab, Ottoman, anything before 1948 is preserved in the city. Why on earth would we be accused of only catering to one narrative? The old city was built by King David. This is our heritage. This is where we come from. This is a city that was built by our people. Now, because of being politically correct, we're not going to show tourists our history. Imagine going to Rome and saying, oh, we don't want to show the remnants of the Roman Empire because it offends some people. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, if there are arguments about the view being changed, changing the view, landscape arguments, I can respect that a little bit more. But to come up with a political argument when in the end, and this is exactly the same thing that happened with the train. We have a light rail system in Jerusalem. The light rail system uh, connects uh, all parts of the city. Uh, one of the lines of the light rail system was Shawafat, which is the northern part of the city, and it's an Arab neighborhood connecting it to the center of the city. And people and the Europeans got involved and they said, you're trying to impose sovereignty and this is political. The biggest um, travelers on this light rail system today are the Arab population of Shuafat. It's changed their, their neighborhood, it's changed the economy of their city, and exactly the same thing will happen when the Arabs who live in Silwan catch the, uh, the, 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 the cable car to go home and they don't have to stand in traffic for 45 minutes, they'll have a completely different perspective. And in the meantime, like whatever happened, like what always happened in Jerusalem, you have these different groups, uh, some of them anti-Zionist, some of them radical left wing, some of them uh, like the European Union, just anything to criticize Israel, let's just jump on board, you know, making a much ado about nothing. This is a tourist uh, transport issue and it is light infrastructure. It's not the heaviness of a train because we cannot bring heavy infrastructure into the Holy Basin. It's a creative way of doing it. It's a pollutant-free way of doing it. But of course, you have to find people who don't like change um, and who like to make uh, political out of the unpolitical. Speaking of making political out of the unpolitical and competing narratives, we've seen, even for Israeli politics, some ugliness lately in, uh, in varying, uh, varying narratives. Uh, just uh, last week, uh, a member of Knesset for the secular nationalist Yisrael Batenu party uh, released a video criticizing, and, and he had his facts wrong, but criticizing what he thought was the notion that uh, public uh, health funding was going toward women who were having their blood secretions checked uh, in order to make sure they were following halakha, Jewish yeah. law. Yeah. Uh, in fact, yeah. those those are private payments. Meanwhile, the chief uh, rabbi, the Sephardic <laughs> chief rabbi of Israel, 
uh, came out with very controversial statements a couple of days ago accusing uh, immigrants from the uh, former Soviet Union of basically being goyim, of, of not being Jews and of being haters of religion, which has incensed um, a number of people across the political spectrum. So you have this back and forth between the secular, the religious. It's been going on for a while now. I don't know if it's because we have another election coming up, but it's getting oh, particularly ugly. Is. What is the role? Absolutely of- it is. Absolutely it is. Everything in this country political. That's why I'm against church and state being together because the minute you make religion into a state actor, you defile the religion. You make the religion dirty. You don't make the religion pure. You don't make it about Talmudic opinions. You make it about money and resources and politics. And this is, it cheapens the religion when religion becomes political. And unfortunately, this is another example. You know, we are a country of immigrants. This is what makes this country great. The fact we're all immigrants, I'm an immigrant, many Russian immigrants, the Russians have brought wonderful things to this country. The high-tech revolution was able to happen because of all the engineers and all the innovation that came with this very highly educated scientists and engineers from the former Soviet Union, Aliyah. Of course, there are some of them, many of them, who may not be halachically Jewish, but what we need to do in this country, instead of criticizing them, is embrace them and find easy ways to accept accept them into the Jewish tent, conversion-wise and otherwise, and not criticize them or demean them. These people, the rabbis who do these things, are just making division and are desecrating the name of God because we are all his children. And what we have to be doing is finding ways to increase them, to bring them into the tent and not to make them feel isolated. Now this, I'll tell you a very cynical comment, this to Avigdor Lieberman, who's, uh, you know, who's fighting in the next election, is actually a fantastic thing to happen to him because now he can go to his electorate and say, you see, look what Bibi's doing. Look at the religious people that sit in his coalition. When of course he's got nothing to do with the actual government. And I'm sure that nobody in the government would have said anything like that. But of course, this is the politicization of spiritual leaders that unfortunately we've had to uh, we've had to deal with uh, for many, many years. Uh, this particular rabbi is really one of the most politically incorrect rabbis that there are. Uh, he's spoken against LGBT, he's spoken against Arabs. Uh, and uh, now it's the turn of the Russian immigrants. And I'm very sorry that they have to hear this garbage. And I'm very sorry they have to hear this hatred by what supposedly should be a spiritual leader. Flor Hassan Nahum, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you got a meeting coming up in just a few moments here. Thank you so much. Uh, always insightful, uh, always uh, able to pass along uh, wisdom and a unique perspective on matters. The Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem for Foreign thank Affairs you. and Tourism, we really appreciate your time, Flor. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Mike Wagonheim. You've been listening to the I-24 News Podcast, Synagogue and State. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>